We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And away we go, episode 83 of the Al Galdi podcast. Yes, the Ricky Sanders episode. It is Monday, June 14th, 2021. What is Flag Day 2021? Flag Day is every June 14th, commemorates the adoption of the flag of the United States on June 14th, 1777, by resolution of the Second Continental Congress. So we salute the flag on this flag day, just like I salute you for listening to this podcast. Hope you had a nice weekend. I was thinking that we might get fully-fledged Wizards news over the weekend. We did not. Uh, The rumblings, though, do continue that the Wiz will be retaining Scott Brooks as head coach, but that hasn't yet been widely reported, to say nothing of that being official. I don't know about you, though, but watching the Phoenix Suns close out the Denver Nuggets on Sunday night at the Nuggets, 125-118. I could not help but think of our Wiz. The damn Washington Wizards! Yes, that team. And I know, Nikola Jokic, who just won MVP for the regular season, ejected in the third quarter on Sunday night for a flagrant foul type two. That certainly did not help out the Nuggets. But still, the Suns are flying right now. The Suns were a bad team for years. Six consecutive losing seasons until this season, during which the Suns went 51-21 and in the regular season to get the number two seed in the ultra-tough Western Conference. The Suns now have won a franchise record seven consecutive playoff games, and the Suns now are in the Western Conference Finals. The Suns swept the Nuggets in four games in the second round. Devin Booker is very good. DeAndre Ayton is very good. But you very much could argue that the Suns' MVP is Chris Paul. Chris Paul in his age 35 season, was so good on Sunday night. 14 of 19 shooting, all twos, 9-9 on free throws, 37 points, 7 assists versus 2 turnovers, 2 steals. He has advanced to the conference finals for the second time in his career. If the Suns can go from being really bad to really good and can do this on the back of an aging and expensive point guard who shoots a bunch of twos, why can't our Wizards? The Wizards have Russell Westbrook, as the Suns have Chris Paul. The Wizards have Bradley Beal, as the Suns have Devin Booker. I know that things aren't as simple as I'm making them out to be, but I look at the Suns and I'm like, why can't our team do that? 
the damn Washington Wizards. Yes, just something to think about. If the Wizards are keeping Brooks, then I want the Wizards thinking big. They so often haven't thought big over the years. That needs to change. Well, speaking of big, big show for you on this Monday. Special guest, NFL analytics expert, Sam Hoppin. He recently put together something that got a lot of attention on social media. The something highlighted just how good Ryan Fitzpatrick was in the 2020 season when viewed through the prism of analytics. It's time for us to really attack this question. Is Fitzpatrick as good as the analytics suggest? Because what's undeniable is that the analytics scream that Fitzpatrick has been very good in recent seasons, much better than people realize. Did the Washington football team get itself a steal in signing Fitzpatrick to a one-year $10 million deal? Sam Hoppin is coming up for a deep dive on Ryan Fitzpatrick. But Will Fitzpatrick even be Washington's starting quarterback this coming season? Well, the smart money still says yes, but there's now at least a little more uncertainty with that off the events of minicamp week last week. I've got some further thoughts on Taylor Heineke and Washington's quarterback competition to whatever extent there is a competition coming up next segment. Crazy weekend for the Nationals. Four games in three days at Nationals Park against the best team in the National League, the San Francisco Giants. The Nats pitched out of their minds, but had more, shall we say, betting difficulties. Only won two of the four games. Now, no shame in splitting with the best team in the NL, but that was a series that could have been so much better for the Nats. I'll talk about it at length, as well as discuss the Orioles, who got swept in three games at the American League-leading Tampa Bay Rays. The O's now are in the midst of a franchise record 15-game road losing streak. Remember my mantra for the tanking and rebuilding O's. Pain now, pleasure later. If you're an O's fan, just keep saying that to yourself. Pain now, pleasure later. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I got this email from Joe on the Montez Sweat COVID-19 vaccine issue. Not to bring that up again, but Joe does raise an interesting issue, writes Joe. One more point about the vaccines issue, and this is not to single out any individual player because who knows what each person is dealing with personally or health-wise, and we should not be going around shaming people for that reason. But as an organization, the team needs to be able to count on everyone for this upcoming season. Staff, coaches, executives, and players not getting vaccinated impacts your team, your coaches, and your teammates. The entire team should be united and vaccinated as a group. This goes for any major sports team. It's shameful that professional athletes are still unvaccinated and getting COVID today. Last point to illustrate why the NFL needs to mandate vaccines for all players, obviously with exceptions for legitimate medical reasons. I send my kid to a private middle slash high school in the area. The school is not inexpensive. Let's just put it that way. They are requiring all age eligible students and of course staff slash faculty to be vaccinated for this upcoming school year, as that's the way they can ensure a smooth COVID-free school year. I'm fine with that, but if I weren't, I'm free to send my kid elsewhere. Now, I'm paying this school tons of money, and they're telling me, look, get your kid a vaccine or get lost. NFL players are being paid millions of dollars to play a game. They don't want to get vaccinated to protect their team. Go find something else to do. Well, I tell you what, Joe, you raised a very interesting aspect of all this. The NFL essentially has mandated that staff members and employees get vaccinated. People who are tier one and tier two employees are expected to be vaccinated unless they have underlying medical or religious reasons 
for not getting vaccinated. The NFL could have mandated vaccines for players, chose not to do so. The league pretty clearly wants to play nice with the NFL Players Association and so is relying on, you know, educating players to get vaccinated. But you certainly could argue that the league should have mandated the vaccines for the players. I think what's pretty clear is that the NFL doesn't feel like this is a fight worth fighting. So just go the route of education and presumably you'll get more than enough players getting vaccinated. But we're not there yet. You know, the low percentage of players on Washington who had been vaccinated as of last Wednesday, around 50% per Ron Rivera, really does say a lot. So I'm not sure where we're ultimately going to be at in terms of players getting vaccinated. As I will continue to say, and Joe said it in the email, it's not about shaming people who don't get vaccinated. It's not about lecturing people who don't get vaccinated. It's simply about, hey, here are the actual facts. Do as you want to do. But from purely a football standpoint, there are significant competitive advantages to teams having high vaccination rates, especially among players. And I'll just end with this. I do find it funny how so many people complained about how we as a country handled the pandemic. We developed these vaccines in record time, an amazing achievement by doctors and science around the world. And yet now so many people don't want to get vaccinated. Like, I'd love to know how many people complained about how we as a country handled COVID-19 and yet now do not want to get vaccinated. Like, you can't have it both ways, okay? You can't whine and cry about what we did as a country. And there's a lot of gray area with that stuff, to be honest with you. And now that you have the path out of this, right, the vaccines, you don't want to get vaccinated. So I have a hard time understanding that. Well, if only there was a vaccination that immunizes you from real estate agents charging you a fortune for selling your home. Fortunately, we have the next best thing. A great supporter of this podcast, John Grandland of Real Broker. Consider him the vaccine for having to deal with bad real estate agents. If you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn, if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going, if you're even just thinking about selling your home, contact my guy, John Grandland, aka John G. And understand, whereas Ron Rivera has position flex, John Grandland has commission flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, you have position flex. John G brings it strong with commission flex. You see, not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? It's ridiculous. It's never made sense. If your house is going to sell in six minutes, don't pay 6%. That's dumb. Let John put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. John has a menu of commission packages that you can choose from, including selling your home for free. Yes, he will sell your home for free. Some conditions do apply. But this is the beauty of Commission Flex. And understand that interviewing John Grandlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly. And there's never any obligation to list or sell. Do yourself a favor now and call John Grandlin. He will sell your home guaranteed. That's right. He guarantees the sale of your home. Call John G at 703-537-6747. That's 703-537-6747. Make sure you tell him that Al Galdi sent you, and make sure you ask about what you heard about on the Al Galdi podcast, The Commission Flex. You also can visit John Grandlin online at johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. 
John Grandland. Nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And remember, he is the master of commission flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron. Just like position flex. All right, so this week is the first of six weeks until the Washington football team begins training camp. Training camp, as you likely know by now, is beginning at the Bon Secours Training Center in Richmond, taking place there for five days and then moving to the team's headquarters in Ashburn. Day one of training camp in Richmond is July 27th. There are no more Washington offseason practices until training camp. We do not expect to hear much, if at all, from Washington executives, coaches, and players until training camp. I'm sure guys will do the occasional interviews here and there. In fact, Rod Rivera this past Saturday spoke to reporters for a bit. He was at an event for Joe Gibbs' charity, Youth for Tomorrow, ended up talking to reporters there for a little while. Actually revealed that Luke Keekley visited the Washington football team recently, not to try out, uh, not to potentially sign a contract, just to say hello. But beyond things like that, it's not like we're going to have a parade of press conferences in the coming weeks or anything like that. These next six weeks, essentially, are the true offseason for executives and coaches. Not that they won't be doing work, because they will, but free agency is mostly done. The draft is done. Offseason practices are done. This was Ron Rivera last Thursday at his post-minicamp practice press conference on how he plans to spend these next six weeks. Um, I'll, spend, I'll spend my first week off here, um, taking care of little detail things, little, little things. Um, and then we'll go out, uh, we'll head, we'll head West, we'll hang there. And then I'll come out a week before we start camp and start working on, uh, again, the rest of the little details, getting ready to, to get down to Richmond for, for, for a week and then come back here and, you know, finish up camp. And so I'm, I'm really excited about that. I look forward to it. Um, you know, getting back in touch with our fan base in Richmond and, and making sure they know that, uh, we do appreciate them. That that's important. Yeah, another sign right there that beginning training camp in Richmond is about appealing to the fan base in Richmond and Southern Virginia in general. What about Ron's assistant coaches? What does he want from them over the next six weeks? For the most part, I, I do want them to get away. I mean, I, I have no qualms with the guy, you know, getting off the grid. Um, I'd love to do that, but I promise you I won't be able to. Um, mostly because one of you guys, something will happen, you guys will call me. Um, but. <laughs> That's, that's, you know, that comes with the job, but uh, I will get away. I, I will get to see my family. Um, you know, I, I had the opportunity last year. I told you guys when, when I was declared cancer free, uh, I got to go see my parents and got to hug my mom. So uh, I'll get a chance to go see them now that uh, everybody around them is vaccinated. I'll get to spend a little bit more time with my, my brothers and their family. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Now, you heard Ron joke about potentially getting calls from people who cover the team. There is, of course, the potential for news to happen over the next few weeks. Washington can still make cuts, can still sign players, can still make trades. So, yes, Washington could trade for Aaron Rodgers between now and training camp. But chances are not a lot is going to be happening over these next six weeks in terms of news with the Washington football team. But that doesn't mean that we're going to stop talking Washington football team on this podcast, which gives you the best WFT coverage of any show. Never, ever forget that. And so I'm looking forward to these next six weeks until training camp. I've got a lot planned for you. We will definitely do some off-season in-review stuff. I certainly want to do some deep dives into various topics relevant to the Washington football team. And I'm looking forward to having on a variety of guests. I have some guest bullets that I've been waiting to fire, and I plan on firing those over the next few weeks. So if you enjoy Washington football team talk and you're like me and you can't wait until training camp and the season, do not worry. You need not fret. The in-depth coverage of the Washington football team in this podcast 
is going nowhere. And so with all of that as a setup, I do right now want to get into some things off what we talked about on Friday's podcast, episode 82, regarding something else that Ron said last Thursday at his post-minicamp practice press conference, and that was the something about the quarterback situation. Ron responded to an open-ended question about the quarterback play in minicamp by praising Ryan Fitzpatrick, adamantly praising Taylor Heineke, including calling him, quote, an extremely accurate passer, end quote, talking up the quarterback competition, and not even mentioning Kyle Allen. Here was the question from Washington football team insider Nikki Javala of the Washington Post, and then the answer from Ron. Just overall, what was your what was your assessment of the quarterback play over these last three days? And just generally, what were some of the things that um, I guess stood out to you, um, good or bad? Well, first of all, how 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 quickly things were picked up, um, how well um, uh, fits jives with uh, with our receiving core, our tight ends, our running backs, um, the rapport he has with the offensive line. That was that was good to see. Um, when Taylor got back in there, it was good to see Taylor is, um, you know, the one thing that, that you can say about Taylor is, is he's an extremely accurate passer, delivers a really good ball to the receivers. Um, his rapport with those guys is, 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 is also very good. So it's, 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 it's going to be a good competition. It really is. I, I look forward to it. I think it's going to push our football team and make our football team better. I, I just feel that, you know, going into this, knowing we have a, we have a proven guy there that's that, 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 that has the ability to lead us. But again, we have a guy in Taylor that shows us that he can do it. They're going to compete. They're going to push. And, and, and I'm looking forward to it. All right. What stood out to me from that exchange were two things. One, the extent to which Ron talked up Taylor Heineke. Two, Ron not once mentioning Kyle Allen. And then Ron later in the press conference again expressed regret over not having conducted a quarterback competition at training camp in 2020. The big topic regarding the Washington football team over the last few days has been to what extent is there a quarterback competition? And I found this funny because of so many people having insisted that there was no competition and of so many people having completely disregarded Taylor Heineke, we now have this movement of, oh, well, maybe there will be more of a competition than we think. And, oh, well, you know, Heineke did outplay Ryan Fitzpatrick at minicamp. And take note of that. The consensus opinion of the reporters who were at minicamp is that Heineke outplayed Fitzpatrick. Now, nobody is putting a ton of stock in that. These are minicamp practices. These are practices in shorts with no pads. Offensive linemen aren't cut blocking in these practices. So I'm not saying to treat Heineke having outplayed Fitzpatrick at the minicamp as some all-telling sign that Heineke is the best man to be Washington's starting quarterback this coming season. But I am saying that there has been a momentum shift with all of this. Some of us from the get-go this offseason have said not to dismiss Heineke. It's just funny to me now that people are coming around to this. As Bruce Willis said in the all-time great movie Die Hard, welcome to the party, pal. Welcome to the party, pal. Yes, thank you, Brucey. Although that's a different Brucey. That's Bruce Willis, not Bruce Allen. But anyway, welcome to the party, pal. Welcome to the party, pal. Yes, a few more things to add to this conversation about the competition, however real it is. And that's the thing. My stance isn't that there's necessarily more of a quarterback competition than people think. I don't know if there is or not. My stance is there should be more of a quarterback competition than what people have thought to be the case. I want the open, honest, good faith quarterback competition between Ryan Fitzpatrick, Taylor Heineke, and Kyle Allen. May the best man win. And one of the big reasons that I want that is because I don't think 
we should just dismiss Heineke as some cute little story that has no staying power. Well, Ron Rivera wasn't the only person who talked up a quarterback competition last week. Antonio Gibson, he was on an installment of NBC Sports Washington's Washington Football Talk podcast that dropped last Thursday. Here was his response to whether Ryan Fitzpatrick is ready to run Washington's offense at a high level. Of course, uh, you know what I'm saying? He's been there, done that. He's a vet. Uh, but you know what I'm saying? I feel like those guys got to compete. Um, he's not the only one, you know, out there. Uh, you know, you got Taylor. You got um, Kyle right, is right behind him. And, um, they all make plays. And, um, I'm just loving to see it, and I, I can't wait to see him compete. All right. So, Gibson, in response to whether Fitzpatrick is ready to run Washington's offense at a high level, says, quote, of course, end quote, but also says, quote, those guys got to compete, end quote, and mentions both Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen. The question wasn't, hey, Antonio, is there going to be a quarterback competition? Or, hey, Antonio, what do you think about these three quarterbacks for Washington in Fitzpatrick, Heineke, and Allen? No, the question was about Fitzpatrick specifically, and Antonio pivoted into saying, yeah, I like Ryan, but all three guys have got to compete here. So this talk of a quarterback competition isn't just a Ron Rivera thing. It's also a player thing, at least with Antonio Gibson. And as we have come to know, and we certainly witnessed this during the whole RG3 Kirk Cousins thing, the players know. They know who can play and who can't. And I believe that they believe that Heineke can play. There's a reason that Chase Young was singing Heineke's name late last season. Let's get it there, Heineke. Heineke. Yes, that was Chase Young singing the name Heineke. You can always email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I got an email from Chris Rossi that provided a link to highlights on YouTube of a Taylor Heineke preseason performance from four years ago, August 27th, 2017. This was when Heineke was playing for the Minnesota Vikings. Heineke in that game rallied the Vikings to a win, 32-31 victory over the San Francisco 49ers on Sunday Night Football, actually. And no doubt, this was a preseason game, so I'm not going to go nuts over this. But if you watch the highlights, check out the game-winning play. A Heineke shotgun scramble to the front right pylon for a game-winning two-point conversion run with time having expired. A virtual carbon copy just on the opposite side of the end zone of his touchdown run and the wild card loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field this past January, right? That game featuring the epic third quarter, third and five, eight yard shotgun scramble touchdown run by Heineke. There's something about this guy, a knack for making plays that not everybody has. Fitzpatrick actually seems to have that. Heineke appears to have it too. But Heineke also, of course, has an incredible knack for getting hurt. And that was something else that stood out to me in going through this game and just his time with the Vikings in general. I've talked about Heineke having gotten hurt in his NFL regular season debut, his first NFL regular season start, and in the playoff loss to the Bucs. This is a big reason for why he bulked up this offseason, right? He has said that he put on 15 pounds, but it just hasn't been in those three games in which Heineke has gotten hurt. September 2016, the Vikings placed Heineke on their reserve slash non-football injury list. September 2017, the Vikings waived Heineke with an injury settlement. This was not long after that game, that preseason victory 
over the 49ers on Sunday Night Football. Heineke has been like a magnet for injury. Heck, don't forget what happened just a few weeks ago. Heineke, during an OTA practice, caught an elbow above his left eye during an installation period, giving him a cut that required seven stitches and chipping a tooth. I mean, I know that's a total fluke thing, but again, this guy is like a magnet for injury. There's a reason that Washington's quarterbacks coach, Ken Zampezi, said what he said last Monday, June 7th. This was another very telling thing from last week regarding Washington's quarterback situation. Zampezi on the keys for Heineke to prove that he's more than just a flash in the pan. Stay on the field. The rest of it is, is spoke for itself here this past year. Five quarters. Yeah, okay, five quarters. But, yeah, it was a pretty good five quarters right there. We could have that five quarters. Let's extrapolate that out into the whole season. Wow. High praise. High praise indeed from a guy in Ken Zampese who knows the quarterback position. That answer to me was telling. Washington believes that Heineke can play. Washington just doesn't believe that Heineke is durable, at least not yet. But if you could somehow guarantee that Heineke would not get hurt, I'm not sure that Washington would have signed Fitzpatrick this offseason. One more thing on all of this. Is it just me or do you not find it a little too convenient? that Ron Rivera, in his final press conference until training camp, or at least until right before training camp, changed the conversation about the quarterback situation by talking up Heineke and harping on the quarterback competition. In other words, I would not be stunned if Ron did this on purpose, if this was strategic by Ron, that in an effort to promote competition keep everyone on their toes, keep everyone motivated, perhaps light a fire under Ryan Fitzpatrick, if not also Taylor Heineke, if not also Kyle Allen. Ron made it a point to at least add a little uncertainty to the quarterback situation. And it's not to say that Ron didn't mean what he said last Thursday, but maybe just maybe Ron knew exactly what he was doing in saying what he said last Thursday. Again, it's a little too convenient, isn't it, that in his final press conference before this six and a half week break, Ron says something that, you know, I don't want to say fundamentally alters how we look at Washington's quarterback situation, but does make us rethink how we look at Washington's quarterback situation. I know this, Ron is very aware of what is said and written about the team. He understands the media. He knows how to play the game. I would not be shocked at all if he purposely injected all of this into the bloodstream last Thursday for whatever reason. Just something to think about. Well, here's something to think about if you or someone you know has skin cancer. First of all, we hope that you or that someone you know is doing well. But a big supporter of this podcast is Dr. George Verghese. He is the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He's a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland diagnoses and treats a broad range of acute and chronic skin conditions, including skin cancer. And specific to that, Dr. George Verghese and his institute offer something that's a game changer, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is safe, effective, and non-surgical. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects, cosmetic and otherwise, that come with surgery. You have options. SRT 
is an option. And Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer the option of SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401, or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. Well, as we have been discussing, there are many things to be thinking about for the Washington football team at quarterback for the upcoming season. Among those things is this, just how good is Ryan Fitzpatrick? Because if all you do is go by his reputation and the narratives that have been out there for years about him, then you likely don't think that much about him. But if you actually look at the numbers, what you see is a guy who has played at a stunningly high level over the last few seasons. Specific to last season, Sam Hoppin is an NFL analytics expert and fantasy football analyst. You can check out his work at fantasyevaluator.com. He also does work for 4 for 4 Fantasy Football and Establish the Run, two very popular fantasy football and NFL analytics enterprises. Sam recently put together an incredible color-coded chart of the analytics from Sports Info Solutions from 2020 of the presumed starting quarterbacks for all 32 NFL teams in 2021. The idea was how can these quarterbacks improve analytically this coming season? Here's what you need to know. The color green in the chart is good, and there's a whole lot of green for Ryan Fitzpatrick. This is yet another instance of the analytics revealing Ryan Fitzpatrick to have recently been very good, if not great. Sam joins me now on the podcast. Sam, it's great to have you on, man. How are you? Al, I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me on. Thanks for the the warm introduction. I by no means would consider myself an expert, but uh, an enthusiast nonetheless. Well, great. It's it's very nice to have you on, and I want to get your takes on a bunch of different things here. But I guess let's just start with the chart. Uh, what inspired you to put together the chart, and how long did it take to do? So I was listening to the Mita Kimes show last week, and she had Nate Tice on, and they were talking about, they went through all the quarterbacks uh, outside of the rookies uh, who are going to be presumed starters this year and what they thought they could improve. And a lot of it was from more of a, a film perspective or sort of what you see with your eye perspective. I know you know, like with Patrick Mahomes, it was let his line do the work for him um, and not do... Uh, a ton of extra stuff and me being a person who uh, is very analytically inclined wanted to take that a step for- further and look at the numbers see what the numbers said not that that you know gives the full context for everything but figured it would give a, a good landscape so went through each of the uh, presumed stars for the year with a couple uh but the non-rookies included and had Jameis Winston in there for the Saints, used his 2019 stats for that as well. And took me all told about an hour to put together, but thought it was was really interesting. Got a lot of publicity, which was was great, but happy to uh, and excited to talk about it a little bit more here. Yeah, so with Ryan Fitzpatrick, were you surprised at how well he did in the chart? 
I was, and I think a lot of people were. I think the other person who I got the most comments about was Kirk Cousins, who you'll see has a, a nice green stripe across his name. But the thing that really stood out for me with Fitzpatrick in general was with how well he was playing, the fact that the Dolphins sat him pretty much the second rest of the year in favor of Tua. And I I understand that you want to get your rookie quarterback developed, but they had a team that was playing so well, had a shot to make some noise in the playoffs and to to sit him, I, I think was probably not the best decision for the season, but I, I understand why they were doing it. But Ryan Fitzpatrick, I know in the fantasy football community is a, is a fan favorite for sure, just with his uh, gunslinging mentality and, uh, proclivity for just sort of chucking it deep and he I think will provide a, a great boost to the the Washington offense in 2021. Yeah we're certainly looking forward to that being the case. The two categories in which Fitzpatrick did the best were how he handled pressure and that was measured by EPA expected points added and deep accuracy his on-target percentage on deep throws. So how he handled pressure how well he did on deep balls. I wonder if you could speak to Fitzpatrick having excelled in those two categories in 2020 and what that tells us. So he improved quite a bit in the pressure stat. He was ninth in 2019. Uh, He had about a negative 0.3 expected points added per play, which is is not unexpected because when you have pressure, you're, you're probably not going to get that much success but to be positive in that category I I believe he was the only one to do that in 2020 unfortunately that's one of the least stable metrics uh, among the eight I think that I, I put in the chart so it'll be interesting to see how well he does with that with Washington in in 2021 as far as the deep passing, I, I know I just mentioned that he that was another part that he improved drastically on from 2019. He went from a 42% on target percentage in 2019 up to 65% in 2020. So I think with, with Terry McLaurin and some of the other weapons that they, they have and that they've added, hopefully that can you know he's able to drive the ball down the field and produce some explosive plays for that offense. So I know that the chart is only based on 2020, but there is a lot of stuff out there about Fitzpatrick in other previous recent seasons regarding him having been good. Like he, in each of the last two seasons, has been top 10 in the NFL in ESPN's total QBR. Very few people can say that. He, in 2018, led the NFL in yards per pass attempt. I know the numbers aren't everything, but when you think about Ryan Fitzpatrick, has he been this good the last few years? Like, should he be viewed in a way that is different than the traditional narrative of Ryan Fitzpatrick, which is, you know, he's a bottom half of the NFL quarterback. He throws a bunch of picks, and that's just the way that things are with him. I think he should be. I mean, he. It, I think part of what's driving that is his sort of journeyman career in that he hasn't been on the same team for a long time, which you would sort of associate with not being great because if you're switching teams and the team that you play for doesn't watch you, then – you know, how good can you really be? But in the times that he's played for each of these different teams, he's been, I would say, above average. He's not, you know, in the elite tier with, with Mahomes and Brady and Rodgers, but he's certainly doing enough to help teams win games. And he's got a little bit of that 
risk it, you know, can't risk it to, to win the biscuit and mentality. And that sort of leads to, again, some, some potential losses. But I remember that season he had with the Jets oh, about four or five years ago where he just played outstanding with, I think Brandon Marshall was on that team as well. And he, he was certainly for that season, one of the elite quarterbacks and was just playing out of his mind. But like I said, the fact that he's switched teams so often probably drives that narrative, but I'm excited to see him in Washington. Yeah, that 2015 season was so interesting because you're right, he did play well, and the Jets were actually quite good offensively that year, and then Fitzpatrick fell apart in week 17 of that season, and that's what I think sticks with a lot of people from that year. We're talking Ryan Fitzpatrick with Sam Hoppin, NFL analytics expert and fantasy football analyst. You could check out his work at fantasyevaluator.com. How concerning to you, if it's concerning, is Fitzpatrick's age? He's going into his age 39 season. On the one hand, like we've been discussing, he's been quite good the last few seasons. And we are increasingly seeing, right, older quarterbacks do really well. But on the other hand, I mean, nobody would say that Fitzpatrick is on the level of the ultra-successful older quarterbacks of recent seasons, right? Guys like Tom Brady, Drew Brees. And there, of course, exists the possibility that Fitzpatrick just, like, you know, falls off a cliff in 2021. We've seen that happen with quarterbacks in the past. What do you think is the right way to view Fitzpatrick's age? I, I'm of the believer that I'm not going to doubt a player until I see him in his downfall. Uh, you know, certainly with Brady, he's a, a unicorn in this space. But, I mean, we saw Fitzpatrick play well. Last year, what's us? You know, what should make us believe that he's not going to play well this year? And I think with his style of play, I mean, he's not. You know, it depends on how many sacks he takes and how many times he's getting hit. But you know, he had some some pretty good numbers scrambling the ball, which is on the chart as well. But he's not like these uh, Lamar Jackson, Cam Newton, Deshaun Watson type guys who are putting their their lives on the line to get a couple extra yards on the ground. So I think he's aware enough to be protecting himself, knowing sort of what his limitations and his age allows him to do. So uh, like I said earlier, I'm I'm inclined to think he's going to keep producing at his age until he says otherwise. You mentioned some of the mobility stuff with Fitzpatrick. It is interesting. He's been more productive as a ball carrier than I think people would realize. What has jumped out to you when you look at some of the rushing numbers with Fitzpatrick? Well, certainly just I think it's the fact that he's doing it when he needs to and he's not he's not relying it on he's not relying on it as his first outlet. You know, he's going through his progressions. He's doing the pass first offense, but if it comes to a situation where he just doesn't have any options left and he's got a uh, an outlet to run, he'll take the couple, three, four, five yards uh, scrambling instead of taking the sack or trying to force an, an errant throw. So he's, again, he's one of those cerebral guys, as, as I know a lot of people say, having, having gone to Harvard, I think he's got the decision-making down pretty good and is able to, again, use these methods of escaping the pocket when he's sort of forced to. When you're studying quarterbacks analytically, I know you mentioned earlier passes under pressure. That's not a very predictive stat. Which stats to you are the most predictive? What are the things to be looking at in terms of what might mean the most for Fitzpatrick in 2021? So that's a that's a great question. I, I took a look at each of the stats that I put on this chart here and 
you know, I, I selected EPA for play action and pressure and then for scrambling as well and then did the on-target percentage for the, the rest of the stats, which are just, you know, more accuracy stats. And the reason I did that was because play action is a, is a specific type pressure. You have a little bit more external factors, if you will, and, you know, deep accuracy is sort of, on the quarterback that's that's on the quarterback to to make that throw so i'm usually looking more at accuracy measures like on target percentage um i know there's another stat called cpoe which is completion percentage over expected which you'll see a lot in the analogs community that explains how much above or below you would expect the completion percentage uh it is so those are the things i'm looking at i think EPA per play in general is a great metric to look at as well. But when you start to boil it down into some of these specific scenarios, like I said, with play action and pressure, it can get a little bit noisy, but I, I like them all in context. You know NFL analytics, but you also know fantasy football. From a fantasy football perspective, with Ryan Fitzpatrick in this Washington offense with the likes of Terry McLaurin and Curtis Samuel and Logan Thomas and Antonio Gibson, is Fitzpatrick someone on whom you're bullish from a fantasy perspective for 2021? Without a doubt. I mean, I, I think one thing that isn't getting considered enough is that the Washington defense is good enough to give the Washington offense extra opportunities that you know maybe the Miami defense didn't last year or the year before. I mean, the, the weapons that you just listed are are great on top of um, you know, Diami Brown, who they, they added in the draft as well. So I am very bullish. He's, again, it's sort of that journeyman thing where he's not really getting the respect he deserves, but he's certainly a, a great late-round flyer in, in your fantasy press. Getting away from Fitzpatrick in compiling this chart, what else surprised you or stood out to you in terms of, hmm, you know, that's interesting. I wouldn't have thought that this guy would come out this way. So Kirk Cousins, like I mentioned earlier, was certainly caught the eye of a lot of people. And that's that's where I mentioned it. You need to take these with a little bit of a grain of salt. You need to take them in context because Kirk Cousins, I think, is one of those quarterbacks who, who keeps putting up good numbers and just hasn't had quite the success on a team level as some of the other quarterbacks. So that makes him a little bit underrated in that regard. But the other one is just how poor Carson Wentz was. And it showed on the field, on the tape, you know, some of his counting stats weren't as bad as people remember, but he just did not have a great season last year. And I'm hoping that with a better offensive line in Indianapolis, he can turn things around. It's so funny you bring up Kirk because for years here in D.C., that was the A topic. You know, is Kirk Cousins a franchise quarterback? Isn't he? Should Washington sign him to a long-term contract or shouldn't Washington do that? I was a big Kirk supporter. I I thought a lot of the criticism here locally was unfounded and ridiculous. And I think analytics have helped to expose him to be, I think, a good quarterback. Is he elite? No. Is he great? Maybe not. But, you know, he's consistently to me like, Top 12, you know, top 15 at worst. And just to me, it's like you can win with a guy like that. We've seen him win a playoff game with the Minnesota Vikings. But as you think about Kirk, what is he truly? Is he a legitimate franchise quarterback? Is he someone with whom you can make a deep postseason run? 
Ability to make a deep playoff run, I don't think so. I think he might be one of those guys that could potentially put you in that QB purgatory, uh, as my friends at the Around the NFL would point out. And it's, I don't know, he's, like you said, he's a top 12 guy, but and he's not going to lose you games, but he's not really going to be the one to win you games. I mean, the, the focus of that offense is Dalvin Cook, and it's Dalvin Cook for a reason, because they trust him evidently more than Kirk Cousins. That said, I think there are teams like the Denver Broncos or the New York Giants that if they had someone who was just average, that could sort of take them to the next level uh, of what they are now. Very good. Well, I love talking quarterbacks. The chart you put together was great. I uh, really enjoy the conversation. Sam Hoppin, you can check out his work again at fantasyevaluator.com. Also does work for 4 for 4 Fantasy Football and Establish the Run. All the best to you, Sam. Thanks so much for your time. Al, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, it hasn't been a good season for the Nationals so far. It also has been an odd season for the Nats so far. And that latter reality was heightened with what happened in this now-concluded four-game series with the San Francisco Giants at Nationals Park. This series legitimately was one of the best-pitched series in Nationals history. Despite the Nats facing the best team in the National League and the Giants, despite the Nats only getting a third of an inning from Max Scherzer, despite the Nats having Steven Strasburg on the 10-day injured list, despite Patrick Corbin not starting a game in the series, although with the way that he's pitched the last two seasons, that probably was a good thing, and despite the Nats going the entire series without their best reliever this season in Daniel Hudson, who now is on the 10-day IL, this series ended up being, again, one of the best-pitched series in Nationals history. In a series in which the Nats' last three starting pitchers were Eric Fetty, Jeffrey Rodriguez, and Joe Ross, the Nats' pitching was superb, and yet, the Nats only won two of the four games. If that doesn't tell you everything you need to know about the Nats' bad offense this season, I don't know what does. The four games against the Giants at Nationals Park, a one nothing loss on Friday night, a 2 nothing seven-inning win on Saturday afternoon in game one of a doubleheader, a 2-1 eight-inning loss on Saturday night in game two of a doubleheader, and a 5 nothing win 
on Sunday afternoon. Nats now are 27-35 and 35 on the season. They are last in the National League East, seven and a half games behind the first place New York Mets. The Nats have by far the worst run differential in the NL East at minus 26. Now, this series was a special series, the first series for which 100% capacity at Nationals Park was permitted since the COVID-19 pandemic started. The official attendances over the four games, 18,029 for the 1-0 loss on Friday night, a game for which Ron Rivera threw out the ceremonial first pitch, did a nice job. Davey Martinez caught Ron. That was cool to see. Uh, the attendance for the 2-0 seven-inning win in game one of the doubleheader on Saturday, 16,425. Attendance for the 2-1 eight-inning loss on Saturday night in game two of the doubleheader, 24,066. And then official attendance for the 5 nothing win on Sunday afternoon, 21,000. 569. So the attendances for the last two games were up substantially from the attendances of the first two games. Uh, That's not unexpected, right? A Saturday night game that was already set. The initial game on Saturday was part of a doubleheader off the rainout on Thursday night. And then the Sunday afternoon games, Sunday afternoon games tend to draw well. Look, I don't think we should pass judgment on where the Nats are from an attendance standpoint just yet. This was the first series for which you had 100% capacity allowed since the pandemic started. I think if the Nats are still drawing these types of numbers, you know, three weeks from now, a month from now, two months from now, then you say, all right, attendance is down. And I don't think it's a given that attendance at Nationals Park is going to shoot up. You know, the Nats are not a very good team this season. They certainly have not been a very exciting team so far this season. So I don't think it's just a given that you're going to start seeing 35,000 plus game in, game out. I think people are ready and willing to attend baseball games, but I think the Nats have some work to do to earn back people coming to Nationals Park. But the Nats have traditionally drawn well. So I think if the Nats give fans a reason to come, the fans will come. The Nats just have not done a very good job of that so far this season. And I do think that people are willing to come. There was some video on social media on Saturday night of the bullpen on Half Street, and it was packed. I mean, people were out there having a good time. Like, people are ready to be out and about and live life normally. And the Nationals can be a part of that if the team plays better, which hopefully will happen, but I'm not convinced that it's going to happen. But yeah, incredible pitching by the Nats in this series, and yet the Nats only won two of the four games. Here was the breakdown of the incredible pitching. So Nats starters in the series ended up combining, you ready for this? For 17 and a third scoreless innings. I mean, just an incredible job. Now, I know that's not a ton of innings, but four starters combined for 17 and a third scoreless innings. And then the bullpen, Nats relievers in the series combined to allow two runs, one earned in 15 and two thirds innings. All told, Nationals pitchers over these four games, two runs, one earned in 33 innings. A spectacular job by the Nationals pitching staff. Davey Martinez is proud of his boys. I'm proud of the boys. Yes, sir, Davey. At least be proud of your pitching boys. That much we can say with certainty. So the biggest item from this series from a pitching standpoint was Max Scherzer having to leave his outing on Friday night super early because he was hurt. Uh, Scherzer lasted for just one out and 12 pitches in the one nothing loss on Friday night. It was an odd scene. He started stretching on the mound. 
Davey Martinez, Paul Lassard, the Nats director of athletic training, and multiple Nats infielders converged near the mound. Max threw a practice pitch, didn't feel right, and then just walked toward the dugout. And during the walk to the dugout, he screamed the F word. And who could blame him? He's Max Scherzer. Uh, Max, during his postgame press conference, said that he felt a groin tweak, that the ailment per an MRI exam was not a muscle strain, and that this was a best-case scenario, all things considered. The latest with Max is he was to throw a bullpen session on Monday. If all goes well, he will make his next start, which is set to be Wednesday afternoon's Game 3 against the Pittsburgh Pirates at Nationals Park. But if things don't go well for this Max Scherzer bullpen session on Monday, then it looks like he'll have to go on the 10-day injured list and miss, hopefully, just the one start. So we'll see here. I mean, it could have been much worse. You know, it's a lower body injury. It's not an upper body injury. So, you know, it's not a shoulder or an elbow or anything like that, but it is an ailment. And Scherzer did have to leave a start off recording just one out and throwing just 12 pitches. Look, Max Scherzer is in his age 36 season. And as all time great as he has been, he is a human being. And we have seen signs over the last few seasons of the body starting to break down. Now it's all relative. It's not like he's been a wreck in terms of constantly being on the 10-day IL or anything like that. But remember, Max, during his 2019 regular season, dealt with two stints on the 10-day injured list and really was never the same after those. He got shockingly scratched from his scheduled start in World Series Game 5 in 2019. Even this past winter, Max Scherzer dealt with a sprained left ankle. Remember, Davey Martinez, on the day on which Nats pitchers and catchers had their first workout at 2021 spring training. So this is uh, this past February revealed that Max had sprained his left ankle while conditioning about two weeks earlier. So, you know, we've had multiple nagging nuisance type ailments that Max has dealt with in recent seasons. Things that get in the way. And this groin tweak on Friday night certainly has gotten in the way. Hopefully he makes his start Wednesday against the Pirates. But in terms of the rest of the national starting pitching in this four-game split with the Giants, I think the highlight of the weekend was Eric Fetty. Fetty in the 2-0 seven-inning win over the Giants on Saturday afternoon in game one of the doubleheader was really good. Now, Joe Ross's start the next day was better, but I think Fetty's start means more. Fetty tossed five scoreless innings with seven strikeouts versus four hits, all of which were singles and no walks on 82 pitches, 51 strikes versus 31 balls. Now, you got to think about the circumstances under which Fetty did what he did. The Nats on Saturday returned Fetty from rehab and reinstated him from the COVID-19 injured list. He had been on that since May 19th due to, remember, getting COVID-19 despite having been vaccinated. Fetty, per MLB's COVID-19 protocols, was forced to spend 10 days in quarantine despite having been vaccinated and despite never having any symptoms of COVID-19. It was criminal what happened to Eric Fetty. We know that you can get vaccinated and still get COVID-19, but if you're vaccinated and you're showing no symptoms, you shouldn't have to quarantine for 10 days the way that Fetty did. Then Fetty had a hard time making his rehab start for High A Wilmington. What happened with that was his first two attempts at a rehab start were postponed due to rain. So this bad luck for Eric Fetty continued, and he ended up being out for about a month with COVID-19 even though, again, he got vaccinated and he never had any symptoms, but he got placed on the COVID-19 IL on May 19th, wasn't returned from that until this past Saturday, June 12th. We didn't know what to expect from Fetty in this game on Saturday afternoon, but he went out there and he was really good. Again, five scoreless innings, seven strikeouts. Fetty in a scoreless top of the first recorded strikeouts of the Giants numbers two through four batters and Mike Jastrzemski, Buster Posey, and Brandon Belt. Fetty in a perfect top of the fourth struck out the Giants numbers four and five batters and Brandon Belt and Brandon Crawford 
for the first two outs. Fetty's last major league start had been in the 3-0 win at the Arizona Diamondbacks on May 16th. That game, up to that point, was the best start of Fetty's major league career. Seven scoreless innings. And then he got COVID-19, and he was out for about a month. And again, you didn't know what to expect. Well, Fetty was right back at it. He picked up where he left off with what he did in this game on Saturday afternoon. And the rise of Eric Fetty now continues. A 2014 first-round pick, who largely has been disappointing, is really showing signs of growth so far this year. He got shelled in his first start of the season. Six runs, five earned, and one and two-thirds innings in the Nats 7-6 loss to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park in game one of a doubleheader on April 7th. Since then, he's been really good. And you really have to ask yourself here, in this season that has gone so poorly for so many reasons for the Nationals, is Eric Fetty blossoming into a quality major league pitcher? Because that is such good news on so many levels, not just for Fetty specifically, but for a Nationals team that has had a very hard time developing starting pitching, for a Nationals team for which Max Scherzer is going to be entering free agency after this season. John Lester is only on a one-year contract. You don't know what to expect from Steven Strasburg from a health standpoint. Nobody knows what the heck is going on with Patrick Corbin and his regression over these last two seasons now. If Eric Fetty is finally becoming the starting pitcher he was drafted to be, that is excellent news for the Nationals. Then in game three of the series, Jeffrey Rodriguez put forth a really admirable effort in a spot start. So the Nats on Saturday made a flurry of roster moves that included selecting the contract of Jeffrey Rodriguez from AAA Rochester. You may remember Jeffrey Rodriguez. He pitched for the Nationals at the major league level in the 2018 season. Jeffrey Rodriguez is a big guy. He's listed as being 6'6". The Nats re-signed him this past December to a minor league deal. He was actually signed by the Nats as an amateur free agent all the way back in January 2012. As mentioned, pitched for the Nats at the major league level in the 2018 season and then was traded by the Nats to the Cleveland Indians in the deal that brought back Jan Gomes to the Nats in November 2018. Rodriguez got the call for the spot start and what ended up being a 2-1-8 inning loss to the Giants at Nationals Park on Saturday night in game two of the doubleheader. And Rodriguez got the job done. It wasn't always pretty, that's true. But given the circumstances, you take this and you run with it. Four scoreless innings from Jeffrey Rodriguez. Two strikeouts versus one hit, which was a double. Three walks and a wild pitch. He threw just 32 strikes versus 28 balls on 60 pitches. But four scoreless innings are four scoreless innings. The run prevention was there. Rodriguez tossed a scoreless top of the first despite issuing a one-out five-pitch walk to Donovan Solano and a two-out seven-pitch walk to Wilmer Flores. Rodriguez tossed a scoreless top of the third, despite giving up a leadoff double to Mike Dostremski and issuing a two-out wild pitch that advanced Dostremski to third base. Rodriguez tossed a scoreless top of the fourth, despite issuing a one-out four-pitch walk of Mike Talkman. Really nice job by Jeffrey Rodriguez. Now, it says a lot about the Nationals' lack of starting pitching depth that Jeffrey Rodriguez was the person who was summoned to make the spot start, but again, he did a nice job, all things considered. And then came the best start of the series from a standpoint of just what was done by the pitcher in the game. Joe Ross in game four was outstanding. The 5 nothing win over the Giants at Nationals Park on Sunday afternoon. Ross authoring the best outing of his major league career. Eight scoreless innings on nine strikeouts versus five hits, which were three doubles and two singles, and no walks on 108 pitches, 72 of which were strikes. Joe Ross threw 72 strikes versus 36 balls, literally two strikes for every one ball 
in the outing. Joe Ross has never been better than what he was on Sunday afternoon. I cannot praise him enough for what he did, especially when you think about it. The Nationals and this fatigue state of the bullpen, the Nats needed length from Ross in addition to quality from Ross on Sunday afternoon, and he provided both big time. Ross in a perfect top of the third struck out the Giants numbers eight and one batters and Steven Duggar and Mike Talkman. Ross in a scoreless top of the seven struck out the Giants numbers four and six batters and Brandon Crawford and Brandon Belt. I mean, nine strikeouts in eight scoreless innings. We're not used to that kind of thing from Joe Ross. He's not known for being a strikeout pitcher, and yet he certainly was on Sunday afternoon. Now, look, Joe Ross has been very up and down so far this season. I don't know that this means anything truly long term. It clearly, though, was a really good outing. It also was a reminder of how good Joe Ross can be. I think one of the frustrations with Joe Ross is you know that he's capable of pitching at a high level. He just doesn't always pitch at a high level. He's very inconsistent, sometimes within the same game. Like, you look at what happened in his last outing, that 5-2 loss at the Philadelphia Phillies on June 5th. Ross in that game, four runs, all unearned in six innings. He tossed three perfect innings, but then gave up the four runs, all unearned in the bottom of the fourth. It's like, you know, he's really good, and then one or two mistakes get made, and then he's not so good, but then he can be back to being really good. Obviously, he was outstanding on Sunday afternoon, and given the state of the rotation, again, Steven Strasburg on the 10-day IL, Patrick Corbin is a mess. Now, Max Scherzer is dealing with his groin tweak. If Eric Fetty is blossoming, if Joe Ross is getting back to pitching at the level we saw him pitch out, remember, in 2015 and 2016, those two developments are awesome developments for the Nationals. Then there was the bullpen, which again was leaned on too much in this series, but ultimately came through big time. Again, Nats relievers in the series combining to allow two runs, one earned in 15 and two-thirds innings. And the game that stands out is game one, that one nothing loss to the Giants at Nationals Park on Friday night. Max Scherzer only lasts for one out and 12 pitches. Five Nats relievers end up being called upon. Those five Nats relievers combined to allow one run in eight and two-thirds innings on 10 strikeouts. What a job. And all these guys were what you would call non-varsity guys, non-A-team guys. You did not see Daniel Hudson in this game. You did not see Brad Hand in this game. You didn't even see Tanner Rainey in this game. The five relievers were Paolo Espino, Kyle McGowan, Wander Suero, Ryan Harper, and Sam Clay. Those five guys, again, one run in eight and two-thirds innings on 10 strikeouts. The guy who carried the heaviest load was Espino. One run in three and a third innings on five strikeouts. The run coming on a one-out solo homer by Buster Posey in the top of the fourth. McGowan, one and a third scoreless innings with two strikeouts. Suero, a perfect top of the sixth. Harper, two perfect innings with two strikeouts. Clay, a perfect top of the ninth. Then came the big bullpen news on Saturday. The Nats, among their flurry of roster moves, placing Daniel Hudson on the 10-day injured list, retroactive to June 10th with right elbow inflammation. And this is certainly significant. It, though, was not necessarily shocking. Uh, Daniel Hudson had been struggling. We've talked about this. Hudson was so good early in the season. He really had come back down to earth in recent weeks. Hudson, over his previous five appearances, five runs in six into third innings. And even that didn't tell the whole story because Hudson, in a 5-3 win at the Atlanta Braves on June 2nd, allowed two inherited runners to score in the bottom of the seventh inning. So your best reliever overall this season is on the IL, and yet the bullpen gets the job done as the series goes on. Two Nats relievers in that 2 nothing seven-inning win 
over the Giants at Nationals Park on Saturday afternoon in game one of the doubleheader combined for two scoreless innings. Kyle Finnegan, a scoreless top of the sixth. Brad Hand, a perfect top of the seventh. Five Nats relievers in the 2-1-8 inning loss to the Giants at Nationals Park on Saturday night combined to allow two runs, one earned in four innings. Kyle McGowan, a perfect top of the fifth. Tanner Rainey, a scoreless top of the sixth. Brad Hand pitching for the second time in the same day, tossing a scoreless top of the seventh. Finnegan, pitching for the second time in the same day, did end up giving up two runs, one earned in the top of the eighth inning. And then Ryan Harper in that top of the eighth comes on and is a fireman. He enters the game in the top of the eighth with the bases loaded, just went out. Nats trailing 2-0, retires the two batters he faces. And then in the 5-0 win over the Giants at Nationals Park on Sunday afternoon, you only need one reliever because Joe Ross gave you eight scoreless innings. Sam Clay was that reliever, and he was good again in the series. A perfect top of the ninth inning. What a job by this Nationals pitching staff in this series. And yet, like I keep saying, that's only one, two of the four games, and that was because of the offense. Now look, the Giants entered this series as the best team in the majors. The Giants entered this series number one in the majors in pitching staff ground ball percentage at 47.8. The Giants entered this series tied for eighth in the majors in defensive run saved at plus 18. The Giants are very good at what we like to call run prevention, preventing runs. It's not the Giants offense that has led the way for San Francisco this season. That, to be fair, is part of why the Nationals pitching was so good in this series. The Giants lineup does not overwhelm you. The Giants defense, though, does. And facing a Nationals offense that we know is not very good, uh, who do you think ended up winning this matchup? The Nats offense over the first three games of this series was atrocious. I mean, there's no other way to say it. The one nothing loss on Friday night, the Nats were pathetic offensively. Got shut out on two hits and one walk, went 0 for 1 with runners in scoring position. Anthony DiSclafani, who had been good this season, but certainly not great this season, a two-hit shutout with eight strikeouts. That loss was the Nats' eighth shutout loss in 59 games to begin this season. Then came the 2-0 seven-inning win in game one of the doubleheader on Saturday. Nats in that game, four hits, two walks, 0 for 4, with runners in scoring position. Yes, the Nats won. It wasn't because the offense was anything special. Nats did get Kevin Gaussman out of the game early. He ended up giving up two runs in four innings. And in case you don't know, Gaussman, the former Oriole, had been awesome so far this season for the Giants. A 127 ERA, a 300 ERA plus over his first 12 starts. But still, that was not some special offensive performance by the Nats in game one of the doubleheader on Saturday. Game two of the doubleheader, the Saturday night game, the 2-1-8 inning loss, Nats offense back to being really bad. Nats totaled just one run on four hits, a double and three singles into walk, went one for six with runners in scoring position, despite the game being a bullpen game for the Giants. All San Francisco did was trot out one reliever after another. The Nats could do nothing offensively for so much of the game. And there were some really pathetic innings in this game. The Nats numbers one through three hitters, Trey Turner, Juan Soto, and Ryan Zimmerman looked feeble in a one, two, three Nats bottom of the sixth against the giant submarining reliever, Tyler Rogers, who struck out Soto and Zimmerman each on four pitches. The Nats numbers four through six batters, Kyle Schwarber, Josh Harrison, and Jan Gomes all struck out in a one, two, three Nats bottom of the seventh against Giants reliever Jake McGee. The only game in this series in which the Nats offense was truly decent, okay, if not good, was the win on Sunday afternoon, the 5-0 victory. The Nats in that game, 10 hits, including two homers and two doubles, four walks, two for eight with runners in scoring position. That was a professional, acceptable offensive output. The rest of the series, really bad, as this Nats offense continues to be a big problem 
in this season. Now, I mentioned the Nats hitting two homers in the win on Sunday. One player was responsible for those two homers, and that player player was Kyle Schwarber, who ended up excelling in this series when serving as the Nats' number one batter. Kyle Schwarber was the Nats' starting left fielder in all four games. He served as the Nats' number one batter in games two and four. He totaled three homers and a walk over those two games. He went hitless in games one and three. Now, Schwarber batting in the leadoff spot seems to be more of a matchup thing than it is like, okay, moving forward now, Schwarber is the Nats' new leadoff man. But you know what? Maybe more consideration should be given to that because Kyle Schwarber traditionally is a guy who not only hits for power, but does get on base. He's had some good on base percentages in recent seasons, specifically 2018 and 2019. I mean, I, I've said it. I would go Trey Turner in the one spot, Juan Soto in the two spot. Your two best batters, just get them the most played appearances possible. But if Davey Martinez, for whatever reason, doesn't want to do that and wants someone else to serve as a number one batter, I don't think Kyle Schwarber is a bad option. I really don't. And you look at what he did in games two and four in this series, Schwarber and the 2 nothing seven inning win on Saturday afternoon in game one of the doubleheader, a Schwarber bomb to begin the game offensively for the Nats, a leadoff homer to the second deck in right field in the bottom of the first, and then in the 5 nothing win on Sunday afternoon, Schwarber two for four with a three-run homer, a solo homer, and a walk. His first homer came in the bottom of the first, a leadoff homer that went and projected 407 feet per stat cast to right center field. Schwarber's second homer came in the bottom of the second, a one-out three-run homer that went and projected 426 feet per stat cast to right center field on a 1-2 pitch. And it wasn't just that that was a 1-2 pitch, it was the location of that pitch, which was sky high. The pitch was high, and yet still, Schwarber blasted it 426 feet. In fact, the homer came on a pitch that was 4.19 feet above the ground, making the pitch the highest pitch hit for a home run by a Nats player in the pitch tracking era since the start of the 2008 season. I mean, that was some pitch that Schwarber schwacked for that second home run on Sunday afternoon. And he had a good looking walk, a one out seven pitch walk in the bottom of the sixth inning. So a nice job by Schwarber, at least when serving as the Nats leadoff batter in this series. Josh Harrison had a much needed good series. Harrison was an Nats starting second baseman in games two, three, and four. He went six for eight with three doubles, three singles, and a walk. I've talked about this. Harrison's numbers for the season really had plummeted in recent weeks. He entered the series with his OPS for the season, having gone down from 837 through games on May 23rd to 701, a decline of 136 points for Harrison's OPS for the season, beginning with games after May 23rd. But Harrison was back to being good in this series. The 2-0 seven-inning win on Saturday afternoon in game one of the doubleheader. Harrison, a one-out opposite field RBI double to right field in the bottom of the fourth. The 2-1 eight-inning loss on Saturday night in game two of the doubleheader. Harrison, one for two with a double into walk, had a one-out 10-pitch walk in the bottom of the second, had a two-out double in the bottom of the fourth. And then Harrison in the 5 nothing win on Sunday afternoon, four for four with a double and three singles, two of the singles coming on 0-2 pitches. He had a one-out single on an 0-2 pitch in the bottom of the third, had a one-out single on an 0-2 pitch in the bottom of the seventh, and Harrison made a great defensive play, a diving backhanded stab, and then throw to first on a first pitch ground out by Buster Posey for the second out in the top of the fourth. So great job by Josh Harrison in this series, but there was too much of guys not doing well in this series. Trey Turner and Juan Soto had lackluster series. 
Turner was an ad starting shortstop in all four games. He went three for 15 with three singles and one walk and got picked off and caught stealing. You know, that's happened a few times for Trey Turner here over these last few weeks. You go back to the 2-0 seven-inning win over the Giants on Saturday afternoon in game one of the doubleheader. Turner had a single in the bottom of the first, leadoff single in the bottom of the sixth, but off that single in the bottom of the sixth, he got picked off and caught stealing second base. But here's the bottom line with Trey Turner, who had been so good for so much of this season. His OPS for the season has gone down by 125 points since the start of games on May 21st. He had an OPS at one point this season, Turner did, of 933. That's where the OPS was at beginning with games on May 21st. It has since gone down by 125 points. His OPS for the season now is at 808. I mean, he's in danger of having his OPS go below 800 on the season. And then Juan Soto, you know, man, it's it's so tricky with him this year because, you know, there are stretches in which you say, okay, Juan Soto's back. And then there are other stretches in which you say, man, what is up with Juan Soto? And we're back now to saying, what is up with Juan Soto? Juan Soto, starting right fielder for the Nats in all four games in this series, one for 11 with a single and two walks. And yes, there was some bad luck involved here because he got robbed of a homer in game one of the series. The one nothing loss on Friday night. Soto robbed of a one-out solo homer in the bottom of the seventh as the Giants left fielder Mike Talkman made a tremendous leaping and backhanded catch over the wall for the second out. But also in this series was another killer double play that Soto hit into. The 5 nothing win on Sunday afternoon. Soto in the game, grounding into a 4-6-3 double play with the bases loaded and one out in the bottom of the six. I mean, the Nats had Soto up to bat with the bases juiced and one out. Like, what else do you want as a Nationals fan? And yet Soto grounds into a 4-6-3 double play to end the threat and end the inning. That was painful to watch. Also, Nats got way too little out of first base in the series. Josh Bell and Ryan Zimmerman over the course of the four games, a combined one for 15 with a double, no walks, and four strikeouts. The double was a Josh Bell two-out first pitch double in the bottom of the seventh of the one nothing loss on Friday night. Otherwise, no hits at a first base, which is obviously an offensive position over the course of this series. Bell only started two games in the series. That was interesting. He was an at-starting first baseman in games one and two. Zimmerman was an at-starting first baseman in games three and four, but neither guy did much offensively, although I will credit Zim for making a terrific defensive play in game three of the series, the 2-1 eight-inning loss on Saturday night. Giants' two-run eighth inning could have been a lot worse. Zimmerman, a great charging barehanded scoop and throw to get Donovan Solano out at home on a slow roller off the bat of Mike Tockman with the bases loaded and no outs. Uh, Victor Robles had himself an eventful series. He was an ad-starting center fielder in games one, three, and four, and he had a massive base-running blunder in that 2-1-8 inning loss on Saturday night in game two of the doubleheader. This was really bad. So Robles got hit by a pitch in the bottom of the eighth. And remember, the eighth inning in this game is an extra inning because it was a seven-inning game. This was game two of a doubleheader. So Robles hit by a pitch in the bottom of the eighth, then inexplicably tried tagging up from first to second with a runner on second on a first-pitch flyout by Josh Bell. And Robles ended up getting tagged out in a rundown between second and third for a killer of a double play. The Nats were threatening. They got themselves a leadoff RBI double by Sterling Castro. And then Robles runs himself into the second out of the inning. You go from having a runner on second and no outs to a runner on third and two outs. Just a really bad base running decision by Robles. A guy who, as many of you listening know, has been guilty 
of bad base running decisions many times, way too many times in the past. David Martinez in his postgame press conference late Saturday night calling Robles' decision to try to tag up, quote, poor, end quote, end quote, not a very smart decision, end quote. No, it was not. Now, there was some talk of would Davey bent Robles for Sunday afternoon's game. Davey did not do that. That's really not Davey's style. And the decision to play Robles did pay off. Robles was back out there as an at starting center fielder and number eight batter. That's where Robles batted when he played in the series. And Robles did a pretty good job on Sunday afternoon. One for two with a single and a walk. Leadoff single, bottom of the fourth. Leadoff five-pitch walk bottom of the six. Also, Robles reached base in the Nats three-run second via a fielding error by the Giants starting pitcher Johnny Cueto. Uh, Robles put down a bunt and ended up being bobbled by Cueto. This, to me, was one of these instances in which Robles' speed yielded the error because you had Cueto perhaps rushing to field the baseball because of Robles' speed, and Cueto ended up having a really hard time in trying to make the play, and so Robles got on base. So it worked out in terms of having Robles back out there on Sunday afternoon. He still, though, has not had a good season offensively. You know, Victor Robles has yet to hit a home run on the season. That's hard to do. We're more than a third of the way into the season. Robles has zero home runs on the year. He has been really good defensively. I do want to credit him for that, but uh, way too many base running boo-boos, and uh, offensively, he's got to be better as a hitter. We're still waiting for Victor Robles to bust out as we thought he would. Remember, Victor Robles was a very well-regarded prospect more regarded than Juan Soto. But Robles obviously has been lapped by Soto many times over at this point when it comes to each guy as a batter. Starling Castro, I do want to make mention of this because I've been very hard on him. And it's not like he had a great series two for 12 with no walks and three strikeouts, but he did have two RBI doubles in the series. So a guy who like never gets extra base hits at least had a couple of run scoring extra base hits in the series. He had that aforementioned leadoff RBI double in the bottom of the eighth of the 2-1-8 inning loss on Saturday night in game two of the doubleheader. And Castro had a two-out RBI double in the bottom of the fifth, despite having been down at the count at 1.12 in the 5 nothing win on Sunday afternoon. Next up for the Nats, a three-game series against the Pittsburgh Pirates at Nationals Park. Now, if the Nats are ever going to make a charge this season, this is a series that the Nats sweep, okay? Point-blank period. I know ordering a sweep is a high order, but the Nats have a lot of ground to make up here. Again, the Nats are 27 and 35. They are seven and a half games behind the National League East leading New York Mets. The Pirates have the second worst record in the National League at 23 and 41. The Pirates have the worst run differential in the National League at minus 90. The Pirates have lost seven consecutive games. The Nats should beat up on the lowly Pirates over the course of these three games. Game one, Monday night at 7.05, John Lester will start. Game two, Tuesday night, 7.05, Patrick Corbin will start. And game three, Wednesday afternoon at 4.05, health permitting, Max Scherzer will start. So a very mixed weekend for the Nationals. It was a very bad weekend for the Orioles. This season is one in which the O's already had a 14-game losing streak, which is tied for the franchise's second longest losing streak since the franchise moved to Baltimore to begin the 1954 season. This Orioles season now includes a franchise record 15-game road losing streak. Three more losses for the O's over the weekend as they were swept in three games at the American League leading Tampa Bay Rays. Game one, 4-2 loss on Friday night. Game two, 5-4 loss on Saturday. Game three, 7-1 loss 
on Sunday afternoon. The O's now an American League worst 22 and 42. And the O's now with the second worst run differential in the American League at minus 68. And this 15-game road losing streak is a true franchise record. This is not one of these things that is, well, since the team came to Baltimore or something like that. No, the Orioles, who used to be the St. Louis Browns, had never, as a franchise, lost 15 consecutive road games until now. 15 straight road losses for the O's. Now, as I have said, the O's are a tanking team. This season is not about wins and losses, so I actually don't get that caught up in these things. But, I mean, you can't ignore it. A franchise record, 15 straight road losses here for the O's. Not a great series for the Orioles starting pitching. Keegan Aiken, I thought, was disappointing in game one. The 4-2 loss on Friday night. Three runs in four innings on five hits, a homer and four singles, three walks, and a wild pitch versus just two strikeouts on 95 pitches. He had been good in each of his first two major league starts this season. Aiken was not particularly good on Friday night. Jorge Lopez struggled in game two of the series, the 5-4 loss on Saturday. Five runs in four and two-thirds innings. Now, he certainly wasn't perfect. He was, though, babbipped to a degree, right? Babbitt, his batting average on balls in play, the variance of the batted ball got to Jorge Lopez. So some bad luck was a factor here. He gave up eight hits, which were two doubles and six singles. Lopez only issued one walk. And while he did also issue a hit by pitch, he recorded eight strikeouts and threw 59 of 95 pitches for strikes. The Rays scored three runs in the bottom of the first on a ground ball double, three ground ball singles, and a walk. So there was an element of bad luck here for Lopez, but you can't sit here and say that he pitched well. Five runs in four and two-thirds innings. And then Bruce Zimmerman was so-so in game three, the 7-1 loss on Sunday afternoon. Three runs in five and two-thirds innings on six hits, all of which were singles, and three walks versus three strikeouts on 95 pitches, 56 strikes versus 39 balls. What was particularly notable is that Zimmerman's start actually snapped a streak of eight consecutive games in which the Orioles starting pitcher went no longer than five innings. The Orioles starting pitching had been better lately, but it was better along the lines of, you know, one run in five innings, that kind of a thing. Zimmerman's start on Sunday afternoon, again, three runs in five and two-thirds innings, first time in nine games that the Orioles starting pitcher went more than five innings. Zimmerman had been doing well, entered the game having been good in four of his previous five outings, was not that good on Sunday afternoon. As for the Orioles' offense, uh, not a lot to talk about here. The offense was not good. The O's totaled just seven runs over the three games. I mean, Trey Mancini had a good game on Friday night as a starting DH, a number two batter, a two-out, two-run homer on a one-two pitch in the top of the third, a two-out, four-pitch walk in the top of the eighth. Austin wins as a starting catcher and number nine batter in the 5-4 loss on Saturday, a two-out grand slam to left field in the top of the fifth. And that was about it in terms of notable offensive achievements for the O's over the course of this three-game sweep at the Rays. Here's a bright spot for you. Austin Hayes was back. Uh, the O's on Friday reinstated Hayes from the 10-day injured list. He'd been on that retroactively since May 24th with a left hamstring strain. And while Hayes went hitless in the series, he had multiple standout defensive moments. This is the thing. Austin Hayes is not a great hitter, but he is an outstanding defender. And we saw that in this series. The 4-2 loss on Friday night. Hayes, starting left fielder and number five batter, 0-4 with three strikeouts, but an immediate impact 
defensively. Bottom of the third, Hayes barehanded a ball off the wall and fired a laser to second base to hold Mike Zanino to a leadoff single. Hayes in the bottom of the fourth, an outfield assist gunning down Mike Brasso at second base in his attempt to stretch a single into a double. Then Hayes in the 5-4 loss on Saturday, starting right fielder at number five batter, 0 for 4 with two strikeouts, but another standout defensive play. Bottom of the seventh, runners on first and second, one out, O's trailing 5-4. Hayes, a really nice running backhanded and leaping catch in the right center field gap of a liner by Joey Wendell to save at least a run if not two. So Hayes shining in left field in game one, shining in right field in game two. Hayes last season totaled plus three defensive runs saved in 274 innings in the outfield. He's been even better so far this season. And I love seeing this. Austin Hayes defensively, this guy is already one of the better corner outfielders in baseball. And when you team him up with Cedric Mullins, who's been excellent defensively and offensively, as the Orioles center fielder, I mean, you have two high-level defenders out there in the outfield for the O's. These are the things we talk about, right? The young building blocks. And what is there here truly with which to work? You've got pieces with which to work. Austin Hayes is one of those pieces. Like I said, already one of the best corner outfielders in baseball, defensively speaking. Next up for the O's, a four-game series at the Cleveland Indians, Monday night through Thursday afternoon. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. On Tuesday's installment of the pod, the lessons of the Washington football team's 2021 offseason. Now that it's essentially over, what did we learn? What did what the team did and did not do tell us? I'll also discuss Monday night's game ones for the Nationals against the Pittsburgh Pirates at Nationals Park and the Orioles at the Cleveland Indians. Have a great rest of your Monday. I'll talk to you on Tuesday. Welcome to the party, pal. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.